Let's open our Bibles to a little book in the New Testament called Philippians. Philippians. It's toward the end of your Bibles. It's only four chapters long. And it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi of Macedonia. Philippi was named by a man after himself, Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. It's in the northern part of Macedonia, which is the northern half of Greece to this day. And the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, came into that town in about 50 A.D., and he preached the message that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and had risen from the dead, was seated at God's right hand, and was coming back again. And he was the only Savior from sin, death, and hell. Men believed on him. We know of some of them by name. Mr. and Mrs. Jailer and their children, and Lydia, a seller of purple, were some of the converts of that church. Something great happened 2,000 years ago. In addition to the Lord Jesus Christ coming, the world was one empire, the Roman Empire. I've already addressed the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ broke that in pieces And no world empire has been established since. There was also a great deal of ignorance. Men were polytheists. The Roman Empire, the Greeks before them, polytheists, many gods, many, many gods. They couldn't keep them straight, and those who study them today can't keep them straight. There's too many of them. There were so many that in the city of Athens, which was the center of learning of the world, There was an altar to the unknown God. You know, they had hundreds of altars to the gods they did know, but because they figured they had probably forgot one, they had an altar to the unknown God. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ chose just a few simple men. Fishermen. Ignorant. Uneducated. But they spent three and a half years with him and saw the miracles that he performed heard the truth that he taught, and he empowered them with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. And those fishermen went into the world, and they turned the world upside down, as the Roman Empire said of them. There are court cases on record in the New Testament of it being said that the apostles turned the world upside down, preaching a message that Jesus of Nazareth a man that had just spent 33 and a half years on earth, was the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, creator of all things, and coming soon in judgment. Right. Where that message went, a few believed, most hated it. And they'll, they'll answer for that when they meet him the next time. Amen. And they shall all meet him as we're about to read in Philippians chapter 2. They're all going to meet him. But a great thing happened. And from those apostles, the gospel was transmitted throughout the earth. In the days of the Apostle Paul, the British Isles were already Christianized because the Roman army had had legions placed there since 50 B.C. under Julius Caesar. And from the British Isles, the gospel came to this continent and to this country. And today we are the fruit of the labors of the apostles and the men that followed them. We believe the same scriptures, follow the same Lord Jesus Christ, believe in the same one God, that makes us monotheists, children, instead of the polytheists of the Romans and the Greeks. We believe in one God and one Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe the word of God that those apostles wrote and preached to the peoples of Asia and Europe, and North Africa. And so what do we have in the book of Philippians? This little book that you look at was a person, was a letter. It was a letter from the Apostle Paul, who had first come into the city of Philippi and preached the gospel. Men were baptized, the church was formed, much like this. Simple, unpretentious, practicing the apostolic faith, having no reputation in the world. But when Paul was in Rome in prison, and he, this, he was in prison. He wrote this epistle back to the church at Philippi in which he told them things that they could do to please God more perfectly. Amen. And so we come to the second chapter. And I shall strive to be brief this morning 
in giving you a thumbnail sketch of understanding of this second chapter of this letter written from a prison in Rome where Paul was imprisoned for preaching the gospel because the world hates the gospel of Jesus Christ because it binds their lives. And so they want to get rid of it. As I already mentioned, let us cast their bands away from us and cast their cords away. So men have always hated the gospel of Jesus Christ because they don't want to be told what they have to do. And you know, I have a good deal of me that doesn't want to be told what I have to do. And it's only by the grace of God there's part of me. A new man given to me by the Holy Spirit of God that wants to please God. There's part of me that loves every word of this book. And every tear that that part of me sheds is because I don't obey this word of God enough. But there's another part of me, and so I can well understand the world and their hatred of the Word of God. But I speak to your new men this morning. I speak to those new men that love the Word of God and want to know, what would Paul write? What if we had been in that church at Philippi, Macedonia? What would he have written to us? Here's what he would have written. I want to read the first four verses. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." Now, that's a simple lesson. The wording is a little different than if you listen to the, if you watch the MTV channel or if you read the Dick and Jane books that our schools put out. It's a little more complicated because it's 400 year old English. By the way, far superior English than what is used today. Just look at the second person plural pronouns and singular pronouns throughout the New Testament. The these and thous are not something to make fun of. These and thous were the high English of the English language in which contracts could be written, because it's the only way to know with the second person pronoun whether you're dealing with one person or several. And that is not my point this morning, but these and thous are very important. Ye, you, and your mean plural. Thee, thou, and thine are singular, and there is no way you can communicate that in the dumbed-down English of our day. Because we just say you, and we don't know if we're talking about one or two or two thousand. Don't ever make fun of the these and thous. It's a higher form of English than we have today. That's not my point. My point is I hope you'll love this word. And here we have four verses, and the lesson is simple. He has said in verse 27 of chapter 1, when Paul wrote that first chapter, go back to that lesson that we got last Sunday from verse 27. He said, only let your conversation be as it becometh, The gospel of Christ. Two words in there different than we use them. Conversation means your manner of living, not your communication skills or talking to someone. Conversation is your manner of life. And becometh means to beautify or to adorn. And what the lesson is of chapter 1 and verse 27 is, let your life adorn and beautify the gospel. You know why one reason people don't believe the gospel is because every church they've been in, all they've seen is hypocrites. You know, I've heard that so many times. I'm tired of it. You know what? They're usually right. They're usually right. Most Christians are hypocrites. They talk one thing on Sunday and they live another thing every other hour of the week. And so the apostle gave a lesson in that 27th verse, only let your manner of life adorn or beautify the gospel. And then he told us what was important to beautify the gospel. Look, I love it when it's simple. Right. And, I, and I'm supposed to make it simple to you. Look at verse 27. That whether I come and see you, whether Paul made it back to Philippi, or else be absent sitting in my prison cell in Rome, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is what pleases the Lord, and that is what pleased Paul, and that's what beautifies the gospel when a church strives and works together with one mind and one spirit. When there are cliques or divisions or conflict or envy or strife in a church, the 
presentation of the gospel is destroyed. The number one, the number one exhortation and commandment in the New Testament for Christians is to love one another. Period. There's nothing that even comes close to it. And there it is right there. That's how we adore in the gospel in verse 27. So when we get down to verse 1 of chapter 2, we have the word therefore. When you're reading English and you come upon the word therefore, you're supposed to ask yourself a very simple question. What is that therefore, therefore? Because therefore is drawing a conclusion. And so when we come to verse 1, if there be therefore... And he con- he's going he's gonna to expand on what he taught in verse 27, that we ought to be of one mind and love one another. And my commendation of you this morning for what happened on a Wednesday night when we were all here together, you know, I had someone come up to me on Wednesday night and, say, and ask me, you haven't had anything to eat. Well, I grabbed a couple things to eat after that was asked. But you haven't had anything to eat. Why don't you eat on Wednesday nights? Because I have too much pleasure. Walking around in here with a hundred of you eating and loving each other and chattering so friendly and fellowshipping in the gospel is as pleasant to me as a parent at a table with all their children happily loving each other. It, it, it's, my high, it's the highlight of the week. And I know what the Bible tells me about how God measures churches. And when a church loves each other and there's no cliques and everyone is equal in the whole church, whether it's our children or the pastor, or an old adult. It's very pleasing to the Lord, and it's very pleasing to me. And right. that is what adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may God help us to grow yet more and more in yeah. love toward one another. Because I think you'll all admit with me that we can do better. Oh, yeah. We can do better. We haven't achieved anything yet. But we're thankful for what we've achieved. Okay, we come to verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. Now these ifs are not Paul wondering if there is any consolation in Christ. These ifs are a powerful, rhetorical, persuasive way of writing. He's going to set the Philippians up. If there's any consolation in Christ. Brethren, this morning is there any consolation in Christ? He died for us. He's got an eternal inheritance waiting for us after death in heaven. Is that consolation in Christ? There's enormous consolation in Christ. If there is any comfort of love, is there any comfort in the fact that God has loved us with an everlasting love and sent His Son for us, and nothing in heaven or in hell can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Is there some comfort in that? Yes! With an exclamation point. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Is there a Spirit... That when we're walking in the Spirit, testifies to our heart that we are indeed the sons of God and calls, causes us to say, Abba, Father, are there times where you know you're a child of God? Are there times where the, where the love of God is spread abroad in your heart and you are filled with the joy of the Holy Ghost? Now, if you haven't had that in a while, it's not the Lord's fault, it's your fault. You've grieved the Spirit of God by living a carnal worldly life. But is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Yes. Are there any bowels and mercies? Now, bowels are your tender emotions, your sympathetic emotions. Bowels, that's something inside you. And so it's used as a synecdoche, an English figure of speech, describing all your inner parts because it's the sensitive emotions of compassion and mercy and the kind thoughts like that. Are there those in the gospel? Did Paul have them for the Philippians? Did the Philippians have them for each other? And they were created by God on the inside of men who have been born again. Men by nature don't have them. Men by nature are rather hard-hearted, cruel, selfish, and greedy. Why do you think we have wars and fighting and murder and all the mayhem that goes on in society? Because by nature we're selfish. You know, by nature, I'm the most selfish person in the room except for you. And why would I say that? Because I've also got a good deal of pride. I'm the proudest person in here except for you. You know, we've got this old man in us. Right. And so we come, this first verse is if, 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 by the Apostle Paul. And he wasn't doubting that there was consolation in Christ, nor love, comfort of love, or fellowship of the Spirit, or bowels and mercies. He's setting the Philippians up. If these things are true, then will you do something for me? 
If God has loved you, Christ has died for you, and the Spirit blesses you, and you have wonderful fellowship in the gospel of God's dear Son, will you do me a little favor? Fulfill ye my joy. Will you make me fully happy? The Apostle Paul had written this church and told them they were probably his best church. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 3 says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, that wasn't true of all the churches in the New Testament. You don't read Corinthians and see Paul saying, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. But you do, this church. But notice what he says, fulfill ye my joy. Make me perfectly happy. There is something you could do a little better. And here it is. That ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's unity. That's unity. Church unity. All of us should love each other. And listen, there are differences. Some of us are Yankees and some of us are Johnny Rebs. Some of us, some of you, are more intelligent and some of us are less intelligent. Some are more attractive and some are downright ugly. Some have been trained well and had good homes that they came from and some didn't. And so there's lots of differences. Some of you like to drive foreign cars and think that driving American junk is terrible. Some of you are so patriotic that the only thing you should buy is an American car. You know what? We still all get along, don't we? But it's hard. It's hard. Because you Johnny Rebs, you irritate me. I'm just, you know you don't. I love you Johnny Rebs. You know what? I'm a Yankee, but the South was right. It's too bad they lost. And I mean that respectfully. Look at all the differences. Some of you are Roman Catholic backgrounds, and some of you are Baptists. Some of you grew up being teetotalers, and some of you think that a meal without a glass of wine is a pitiful excuse for food. What a difference. Fulfill ye my joy. Do you want to be a great church? Be like-minded. That means all of our minds think alike. Having the same love, same love in quantity, same love in quality, same love in its objects, same love in its service. Having the same love toward each other, whether it's a child in here or an older adult. The same love spreads throughout the whole church. Being of one accord. Now, does everybody know what accord is? Accord is when you get several notes and they sound right. What happens on a chord when you get one of the notes wrong? What does it do to your nerves, especially Francis Carnell? What does it do to your nerves when a chord has a mistake in it? I mean, it grates on your nerves. And a church is supposed to be of one accord because the Lord hates discord. Right. Does Proverbs chapter 6 list seven things that God hates? Yeah, and what is number seven? A man that soweth discord in a church. A man that upsets the harmony and the agreement of all the members together. To get a group of people like this to all love each other closely as one mind, one soul, one heart is a lot of work. And the Lord God hates a man that would whisper about another one. Slander them a little bit. Backbite them a little bit. Talk about their neighbor behind their back. The Lord hates all that. And here's the exhortation that if we want to fulfill... The joy of an apostle, we will be a church that's entirely united together, of one accord, of one mind, same mind, same love. That is what we've been called to do. This is the overwhelming lesson of the first half of this chapter. And here's how we do it. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Don't do anything in your life that's fighting another person. There should be no quarrels in here. You know what my mother taught me? Takes two to fight. Now, if all of if somebody gets bent out of shape someday, but the other person doesn't get bent out of shape because they're bent out of shape, then a fight's going to end very quickly. Right. It says, "Let nothing be done through strife. No fighting. No envy. No bitterness. No grudges. No quarreling." And all those verses are found in the Word of God because a church had better be of one mind, one love, and it can't. It has no room for fighting. So let nothing be done through strife. Let nothing be done through vainglory. That's wanting to promote yourself. There is no place for promoting yourself. None. To promote yourself is vainglory. None of you girls should have dressed yourselves and prepared yourselves this morning to come here to look better than someone else. That's vainglory. All you're thinking about is your own human pride. That shouldn't occur. 
Because that's doing something through vainglory. And then we have, end up with a divided church. Let nothing be done through vainglory. You should be thinking about how pretty all the other girls are. Right. And doing a little bit of work because we don't want to see you the way you woke up. <laughs> Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Do you know what? It's those two things that destroy the world. People want to fight because they're not going to lose. They're not ever going to lose. And people want to promote themselves through vainglory, and it causes all the problems. Right there, this is the Word of God. It's addressed and solved all human problems if we would just obey it. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In lowliness of mind, I have to make a mental choice. I am not important. Everyone else is more important. Through lowliness of mind, get down mentally. The Bible actually says that in Romans 12, 16. It says, condescend to men of low estate. Get down. It's a mental choice. I am not important. I preached a sermon a couple of years ago to you, and I, I used an illustration, which I seldom do, about Gail Sayers, the great Chicago Bear running back. I hardly ever do that. But uh, he wore a medallion that he acquired at the University of Kansas when he saw it on his coach's desk. And he lived his life by that, and he wrote an autobiography based on that medallion. What did it say on it? I am third. I am third. third. You know, that's the key to human success right there. God is first, others are second, and I am third. A low mind, making a mental choice, I'm going to get down and serve others. If I have any vain glory of wanting to be promoted, I'm going to put you down. Because I want to walk on you so that I can get the praise. But if I choose to take on a lowly mindset, I'm going to put you up. And that's why in this church, in the evening services especially, I want all of you men to get up here and tell us God's blessing in your lives. Because I want everyone elevated in this church. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In the last 50 years, all the educated people of this country got together and said, you know, we're all so smart because we've all got PhDs. We should be able to figure out why there are relational problems in the home, between kids at school, wars, and all the trouble that goes on. We need to solve it. And do you know what they came up with? The self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement. And so they have songs like Whitney Houston's, The Greatest Love of All is Loving Yourself. That is the sickest drivel from hell that has ever come up. The reason there are problems is because everyone already has high esteem of themselves, and if they would get rid of some of it and esteem others, they could make others happy, and, and there would be peace. But it's because we think too highly of ourselves, not because we think too lowly of ourselves. There isn't a problem with low health, low self-esteem. It's a problem of high self-esteem. And look at what the apostle said. This is the word of God. It is 180 degrees different. It is 100% contrary to this world's thinking. The apostle said, let each, each of you, esteem other, every other one of you, better than themselves. That's esteeming ourselves less and esteeming others more. If I esteem you more important than me, I am always going to treat you right. I am always going to treat you well. But if I esteem myself, and that's what they're promoting today in school. You know, Johnny, you're so wonderful. You've got so much potential. You're just fantastic. Son, you know, Robert Schuler gets up and preaches in a church that you ought to get up every morning and look in the mirror and just thank God for making something so wonderful. Listen, I get up and look in the mirror and say, Lord, you have a lot of work to do. Totally different philosophy. But it's the philosophy of the Bible. They call it the self-esteem movement. The Bible says, no, it's other esteem that brings peace and unity and happiness. They're totally wrong. Now, I posted a new document on our website yesterday. And this is entirely by the Lord's providence because I didn't have it connected to this sermon at all. But it's on the website, and I'd like you to go look at it. And it's entitled, Self-Esteem is Sin and Sick. And I've got the Bible position presented there, but I've also got three recent 
articles, one from the University of Florida where a man just spent the last five years with several other PhDs reviewing all the known literature, 32,000 reports on the self-esteem movement. And there's a Scientific American document there, all of which say, do you know what? They've just finally figured out after 50 years that they were totally wrong. They went into prisons and interviewed all the prisoners and gave them a battery of tests with questions about what they thought of themselves compared to others. And you know what they found out? That men in prison have the highest self-esteem of all. That's why they have no regard for rules, because they're above the rules. That's why they have no regard for anyone else, because they think so highly of themselves, no one else counts. Amazing, isn't it? Do you know what? I could have saved them 50 years of time and millions of dollars if they had just asked me. And I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I am a fool, saved by the grace of God. But the Bible already answered that. The Bible already said, esteem others better than yourselves if you want to create unity, love, and one mind, and peace, and accord. It's to esteem others better. We need to go on. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, we're so wrapped up in ourselves, our jobs, our cars, our houses, our children, our looks, our clothes, our working out, everything, that we seldom have time for others. And so the Word of God is saying, get out of yourself and get into others. And that's what makes a great church when we truly get out of ourselves and into others. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Can I, can I take just one little second and show you something neat about English? Now, when you see that little adverb there also, this is a little sideline, okay? If you don't want to hear it, just close up for a minute. It says, look not every man in his own things. Now, does that mean I should never think about my own things? But it says that. It says, look not every man in his own things. But if we keep reading, it says, but every man also on the things of others. So it means... We are looking on our own things, but not exclusively, nor as the emphasis. But we're also looking on the things of others. Are you, are you with me? Amen. That's why that also is there. Yep. Because it's worded very well. There's an ellipsis in the first half of this verse. Look not every man on his own things exclusively, is the ellipsis. That's the word missing that you're supposed to understand. Or look not every man on his own things primarily. And how do we know that that ellipsis is there? Because of the word also. Now, having taught that in 1 through 4, do you want to have a peaceful family? Practice 1 through 4. Right. Do you want to have your, help your children get along with you? Practice 1 through 4. A church? 1 through 4. This is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to us today. If we want to fulfill the apostles' joy, which is to fulfill Jesus Christ's joy, this is the kind of church we want to have. No strife. No vainglory. Nothing, nothing done by those things. Esteeming each other always better than ourselves. Looking on their things rather than our things. You know, you should never have a conversation with anybody about your job. You should be asking them about their job. You say, well, what if I'm the one that's asked first? Well, then you better ask first. And you know, what if you're always asking first about their jobs? Then you'll be talking about the things of others rather than your own things. Right. He gives a great example. I want to read to you verses 5 through 11. Now, I believe that all of you know verses 5 through 11 better than any other verses in this chapter. But I want you to know their place in the context and why they're there. Let me read it to you. I'm going to read 5 through 8 to make it shorter. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, why are those verses right there? Those verses are right there to give us an illustration of how to do those first four verses. If you're thinking the first four verses are hard to do, then there's a great illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was God, the Word. And He came to earth and became a man, which is pretty low. I mean, if He would have been an angel, there would have been at least a little dignity. But He became a man, and not just any man, He became a man of no reputation. Jesus of Nazareth 
when men heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, in John chapter 1, it gives us an illustration where it says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right. A pitiful town. You know, it reminds me of Toledo, Ohio. Sorry, Brother Jeff. You know, there are some towns in America that are just pitiful. They're ugly. You know, that's the rust capital of the world. It's an industrial town that just missed out on the renewal. But it's trying to catch up these days. And I, Jeff isn't from Toledo. He's just from Ohio. I knew I had to say something to him. No reputation. A man from Nazareth, born in a stable, laid in a manger, spent his life as a carpenter, and died naked on a cross of wood between two thieves. Right. And he was God. That is humility. Amen. That is service. That is humility. And that is service. There was nothing in that of strife. There was nothing in that of vainglory to hang naked on a cross and be ridiculed on that cross between two thieves, naked, outside of town, after you've lived the life of a carpenter and been rejected and you came from Nazareth and you were born in a stable and laid in a manger. There's no vainglory. He, in lowliness of mind, humbled himself to that death. And that is put right here in context to give us an example of how we ought to serve each other. Right. And the greatness of a church is to the degree they understand what Jesus Christ did for them, so they will serve others the same way and to the same degree. And that's a, that makes a great church. Right. Not in the world, not in the eyes of the world. We don't care what the world thinks about our church. I don't care if Rick Warren of the purpose driven drivel thinks of us as his enemies. I don't care what Rick Warren thinks of us. All I care about is what does God think of us, and do you know how I know what God thinks of us? Of what he wrote in the New Testament. This is what the Lord thinks of us. And he would rejoice if we would get the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he said, he said that he wants us to have one mind. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says he wants us to be like-minded in chapter 2 and verse 2. And he says he wants us to be one mind in chapter 2 and verse 2. Now, he has said it three times, and then he says, let this mind be in you. So he's telling us exactly what mind we all ought to have. If we're to be like-minded, then he tells us what mind ought to be in us. We know that this is the mind every one of us should have. The mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, yet became a man of no reputation and died an ignominious, terrible death on the cross of Calvary for us. That is the ultimate example of humility and service. And we ought to be humble and willing to serve each other. There ought to be no differences in here. There ought to be no one in this assembly that you think in your heart, I'm too good to get down and serve them. I can't forgive them. I'm not going to do anything for them. Someone else will do it. No one like that. And I thank God that he's been as merciful as he has to this church. Those who make the most money in this church don't treat anyone any differently than those who make the least. And it better stay that way. But you know what I want to say? It better get better. I hope it gets better. Because even Paul, writing to a church that was very good, says, Fulfill ye my joy and get better at it. That's what verses 5 through 8 are there for. Now, there's some wonderful doctrine in those verses because they describe the Lord Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sins. But they're there because of the context to give us an illustration of how we ought to serve each other. No differences. Every time I see you adults taking an interest in someone else's children, it blesses my heart. Because you know it is so easy to despise little children. But it should never happen. You know, we, should, we, we can easily think of them as not being very important, especially when they're children of, other, of someone else. But I hope that we will continue to love everyone's children. Verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul, to add weight to his appeal for this church to be unified and to love one another, 
gave the example of Jesus Christ humbling himself from being God to coming and dying a terrible death on earth. That is the greatest example of humility and service that could be given. And he gave us verses 5 through 8 to illustrate what he wants us to do from verses 1 through 4. But since Paul got started with the Lord Jesus Christ humbling himself, he then adds what God blessed him with and rewarded him with for humbling himself. And God will bless and reward the man who will humble himself to serve others. If you don't have the time for your brothers in the church, or if your home doesn't have them eating in your home, or you're not paying for their dinners at restaurants, what is wrong with you? God will reward the one that loves others. Look at how he rewarded the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, verse 9 begins with wherefore. You can also ask a question about that word because it also draws conclusions. Wherefore, because of what Jesus did in verses 5 through 8, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The Lord Jesus Christ is a man. He rose from the atmosphere of this earth through the interstellar spaces 1900 and 70 years ago to the right hand of God. And he sits there on the throne right now as a man, ruling the universe with a rod of iron. Nothing escapes his all-seeing eyes, and there is nothing that can resist his power. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. What's in heaven? The angels, to be brief. What's on earth? You and me. What's under the earth? The devils. Every one of them will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in a day that is coming soon and will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, those that have lived a life of making him Lord are going to be received as his children. And those that have rejected and rebelled against him are going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's the word of the God. That's the Bible that's been preached for 2,000 years in Christian churches. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And brethren, we ought to bow today. Bow in your hearts. Bow in your homes, in the privacy of them, on your knees, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And do you know how you can really show that Jesus Christ is Lord? Change your life to reflect what Jesus Christ taught. It's one thing to sit in church and say that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's another thing out there to do what Jesus, your Lord, said to do. That is a totally different thing. And those are the ones that will be accepted by him in that day. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. The prophetic timetable of this Bible you know, it's, it's run its course. Jesus Christ can come at any time. We live in a wonderful generation. God has chosen us for a special time. We live in the perilous times of the last days. Second right. Timothy chapter 3 and 4. Every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because God the Father has set up the Lord Jesus Christ as his king on his holy hill of Zion. Verse 12, wherefore, if that's true, wherefore, we've got to draw another conclusion, Paul is, in his letter. Wherefore, if that's true, that God has so highly exalted Jesus Christ, and we are going to have to bow before him someday and give an account of our lives and own that he is Lord, if that's true, look what we ought to do. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul writes to these Philippians and tells them, you've always been an obedient church. You were an obedient church when I was there, and you're being an obedient church now that I'm absent. I'm in a prison in Rome. But because of what I have just told you about the exalted position, authority, and judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And yes, don't jump to any conclusions. Yes, we believe in salvation by works. Don't jump to any conclusions. We believe in salvation by works. The only way to prove 
that you are one of God's elect and to lay hold on salvation and know for sure that it is yours is not only to believe on his name, but to live his religion. It is not enough to sit in a church and sing, oh, how I love Jesus. We had also better be living the religion of Jesus Christ. How do you make your calling and election sure? By doing eight things that are listed in Second Peter chapter 1. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And the knowledge, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, charity. And if I miss temperance, I'll add it in at the end. Because it doesn't belong at the end, but that's where I had to put it. Eight things. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Right. That's what I mean by salvation by works. We can't earn a thing with God. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But the only way we can know that we are God's elect and to lay hold of salvation and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling is just what I'm describing to you right now. Doing those things that please the Lord Jesus Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because that is one fearful being that we're going to have to meet and before whom we'll bow. And we will confess that he is Lord, whether you want to or not. The choice is, I'd rather want to. Instead of having him force me, I want to serve him willingly so that he'll receive me as one of his obedient children. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I can promise you one thing. That's not being preached today at Saddleback Community Church in California, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. They don't want you to have to work at all. Come as you are. Come as you are. We won't throw the book at you, we promise. But the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, how does salvation get started? What's its source? Where does it come from? Well, the next verse says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God that works in us the ability and the desire to please God. And when you've been given that and you have a new man inside you, see, there's something that happens in life. Most people just get born once. They get born once, they celebrate 70 birthdays, then they get to celebrate a funeral. They're not really celebrating at the funeral, though. There's other men that are born twice. And when they're born that second time, this is what Jesus called being born again. The Holy Spirit of God gives a man a new nature inside. So he's got two competing against each other. The old nature that loves the things of this world, I've got it, it's, just, it's alive and doing well, although I hate it. And I try to keep it right under control, and I try to put off that old man, but I've also got a new man, and so do most of you. And that new man loves the things of God, and it loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and it wants to please Jesus Christ. Yes. And we are to put on that new man and put off the old man. See, most people don't have a struggle. They're pretty happy living in sin. They don't even know it's sin. They don't even care if it's sin. They just wonder why so many bad things happen in the world. They can't figure anything out. We know why bad things happen. Because we've got a sin nature in every human being that's ever been conceived on this planet. That's why bad things happen. But notice in that 13th verse, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God changes men's hearts. He changed mine. He changed his He was a fool, and so was I a fool. We love getting together. Two fools talking about the grace of God changing our lives. My father was different than his father. My father was a Baptist pastor. I sinned greater than he did. He didn't have a father that taught him the things I was taught by my father. But I still walked out the door when I was 16 years old and told my father, I don't have any need of that Bible where I'm going. Because I was a fool. And I have two parents that are very thankful there's a God in heaven that worked in my heart to do something a little bit better than running away from home at 16 and living on the other side of this country. Because it is God which worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. But do you know what our job is now? And what my job is now to work that salvation out with fear and trembling. Because when I look in that mirror of God's word and I measure myself by this word, I find myself lacking severely. And so we've got to work it out with fear and trembling because very soon, whether by death or by the Lord Jesus Christ coming and splitting the atmosphere open and arriving in the atmosphere of this earth, I will give an account to him of my life and I will own him as my Lord. And so we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
but I know he's merciful, and I know he's paid for all my sins. So my fear and trembling is mixed with a good deal of joy. I'm looking forward to him coming. Verse 14, do you want to please the Lord? What is his good pleasure? Verse 13, we're going to jump right back to his overall lesson. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Those of you that are parents, don't you get tired of your children complaining? I hate complainers. I hate adult complainers more than I hate child complainers. You know, one of the great sources of peace in life is to be content. You know what? You can solve all your money problems by being content with being poor. You say, well, that's ridiculous. No, it isn't. Contentment is a secret to a happy life. Do you know what? A man can be content by being happy with his ugly wife. Instead of always looking at what he doesn't have so that he lives a life of frustration because he looks at other women that he thinks are prettier than his wife, and if he only could spend five minutes with them, he would know he has the best thing God could have made for him. But they deceive themselves. They're complainers. And look at the Word of God. Do you really want to please God? Do all things without murmurings, which is complainings, and disputings. No fighting, no complaining. It sounds like a parent talking to children, and that is exactly what the work of the ministry is. Because a church is just a bunch of kids, and we've got to stop complaining and stop fighting. And so the Apostle Paul, writing a church that was a very good church, tells them, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Those are two fundamental flaws of our nature. We want to complain and we want to fight. We want to dispute. We want to argue, debate, quarrel, grudge, get bitter, resent others. If we do those things, look at what it says in verse 15. This is the goal. This is the goal that God has for his children. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. Blameless. You can't be accused of anything wrong. Harmless, you never hurt anyone, that ye may be blameless and harmless without rebuke, needing no rebuking epistle from me, needing no rebuke from the Lord, the sons of God. That's what we want to be. Now, this is not how we become the sons of God, but though that's what it looks like it is saying, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. It's how we live like the sons of God. It's how we show that we're the sons of God. Nobody can blame us for anything because we're faultless. We treat every person right, no matter their age, economic status, or anything. And we're harmless. We don't hurt anyone. And we're without rebuke. We don't do anything contrary to Scripture for there to be cause for us to be rebuked. That is the Son of God. That's the goal. If we're going to appear before Jesus Christ then we want to be sons of God without rebuke, harmless and blameless in this world. Now, what does Paul have to say about this world? He says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Now, that's not nice. He's writing this letter from Rome over to Macedonia, a colony of Rome, and he says that you poor Philippians are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. We live in a crooked and perverse nation. Our governmental policies, the things that are taught in our schools, the things taught on MTV, the rap artists, and everything else in our society that is contrary to the word of God is crooked. And we live in a perverse nation because it has left what this nation was founded on, and that is the word of God to a great degree. And so we live in the midst of it. Everybody thinks we're nuts. They hate our religion. You know, even though our religion is a religion of peace and unity and love, they hate us doesn't matter. Who cares what they think? All that matters is, what's going to happen when I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of my life? Because that's all that matters. So the Lord says, Be the harmless and blameless sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And we ought to be exceptionally different by our character and our conduct with the world. That is what we should be striving for every day of our lives. Verse 16, holding forth the word of life. That is living the word of God. Living the gospel. Holding forth the word of life. That doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. It means living the Bible. It means living the word of God and holding it forth by our actions so that we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by our conduct, our speech, our thoughts, our deeds. Paul said in verse 16 that I may rejoice in the day of Christ 
that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. See, Paul was thinking about appearing before Jesus Christ himself. And he said, if you're not living those harmless and blameless lives that I've taught you to live, then I'm going to get before the Lord Jesus Christ and find out that all my apostolic labors were in vain. You know, a pastor has two burdens. He's going to give an account of himself to the Lord, and then he's going to find out whether he built his, found, his church on a foundation of gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And he's going to find out that if it, whether his, all his ministerial labors were in vain or not. So he's got two things to think about when he thinks of appearing before Jesus Christ. Look what Paul went on to say. Because he had a good church that he was writing to. Verse 17, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. That verse 17 means, if Nero goes ahead and kills me, and I'm sacrificed, if I have to die and be a martyr here in the prison in Rome, but if I'm offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I can joy. I can die peacefully and happily because you have been such a good church if you'll continue on in your service to Jesus Christ. Then he says in 18, for the same cause also, do ye joy and rejoice with me. While you're living the Christian life, get, be happy about it with me. Together we'll be happy. And if I die, then I'm going home to heaven. You know chapter 1, it said to go to heaven's a better choice. It's far better to die and to be in heaven than to live here on earth. He's already said that in chapter 1. So he's saying, let's be happy together as long as we're serving the Lord faithfully. You say, you've taken a long time just to get to verse 18, and we got 12 more to go. Watch. 12 has two little points. I mean, the, these 12 verses have two little simple points, and I want to get over them in a hurry and summarize and quit. Verse 19 down through verse 24 is about Timothy. Verse 25 to the end of the chapter is about Epaphroditus, two men by name that we have in the Word of God. Very simple. We want to look at the character of two great men that were worthy enough for Paul to stick in this Philippian epistle. Okay, let's read about the first one. Verse 19. But I trust in the Lord, Jesus, to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Verse 20. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to send Timothy to see you very soon. But notice what he had to say about Timothy. Timothy, he said, in verse 20, he had, Paul had no other man like-minded like Timothy. Timothy was the only one that cared for the churches like Paul did. Now, you know, when I read that and I think about Luke and Peter and James and John and all the other apostles, and, and here, here's Paul saying, I only had one that was really like-minded that will naturally care for your estates. Do you know what it tells me? That men who really care for the things of Jesus Christ and the people of God are very rare. And I beg all of you this morning to consider, are you going to be one of those rare ones that care for all the people of God and the church of God? Very rare. I have no man, verse 20, like-minded, who will naturally care for your state. He had within him a spirit that he instinctively and habitually loved the people of God and would do anything for them. Timotheus. For, because Paul says in verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Ministers can be just as selfish as anyone else and seek their own, their own popularity, their own ease, their own comfort. But Timothy didn't seek those things. He sought the good of the saints of God. Will you be someone like Timotheus? Verse 25. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, 
lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Epaphroditus was one of the pastors at the Philippian church. You can find that out by reading the rest of it. It's there in the rest of the epistle. Epaphroditus was one of the pastors, one of the bishops at the Philippian church, and he had brought to Paul a financial gift in in the prison at Rome and to cheer him up about the Philippians. We're going to read about that in chapter 4 when we get to it, and it's time. That's why he refers to him in verse 25 as their messenger, because he had brought a message of how the church was doing and a financial gift. And Paul's going to send Epaphroditus back to them, but he wants to tell us a little bit about what happened. He wants to tell them about what happened. Epaphroditus, we don't know what happened, whether he was shipwrecked on the way there, whether he got some disease while he was in Rome, but he almost died. And his sorrow was not so much for himself as for the Philippians worrying about him being sick. Now, that's a man who is really thinking about other people, isn't it? When you're sick, instead of feeling for yourself, you're worried about people who are worrying about you being sick. Now, that's contrary to nature. But this man loved his church at Philippi. And we want to read those verses, and we want to understand them and accept them and be like that. And have such a sympathetic feeling for other people that even when they're worrying about us and it's our pain... We still sorrow for them, worrying about us. And so Paul is sending him back to Philippi so that that church can rejoice by getting their pastor back. Now, there's a little lesson before, I, before we hit verse 30. Look at verse 29. There's a little lesson. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. A church ought to be excited and happy and thankful for their pastor. Amen. This is what this is saying. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. You have a great pastor. He... It tells us he longed after you all in verse 26. He was full of heaviness for you. He's been a good pastor. Therefore, be glad when you see him again. Let him know how happy you are to see him. And it also says in the last part of verse 29, And hold such in reputation. Lift up the minister that I'm sending back to you because he's worthy of you holding him up in reputation. He truly loves you, truly cares for you. So give him all the respect that his office deserves. And he explains why in verse 30, because he had risked his life to do what they couldn't do. The church couldn't come and visit Paul. That's what it means when it says to supply your lack of service toward me. That isn't a rebuke, because the service was given in chapter 4, and Paul was very thankful. But they all couldn't come. One man came and did everything for Paul on behalf of the church. I'm done with the chapter. What did the chapter teach us? To please the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to have a unified church that loves one another, where we get down and esteem others more important than ourselves. And the great example of that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was God, and became a man of no reputation, to lay down his life and to be hung naked on a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem for you and for me. If he was willing to do that for us, are we willing to get down for every other one in this assembly? If we do that, we are doing what is well-pleasing to God. And we are to do it without murmurings, and we're to do it without disputings. That we can be the harmless and blameless sons of God in this world. That we might be little lights in a world of selfish men. We're not better. God has just given us a new nature. In fact, if the truth be told, you know we're worse in many respects. Because God has chosen the foolish, the poor, and the base people of this world to be his children. And he's given us a new nature that we ought to be working out with fear and trembling. And we shall all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether you want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today or not. You will stand before him and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But I exhort you, for 2,000 years a message has been preached in this world. And it has turned the world upside down. You write dates on your checkbook and everywhere you write a date, testifying to the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why there is B.C. and A.D., and you cannot change it. The world's been turned upside down. The empire's dashed into pieces because Jesus sent his apostles into the world to preach a message 
that Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting at God's right hand and is coming again to judge this earth for its wickedness. I preach that same message. And brethren, I exhort you to humble yourselves, kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. He's a loving and merciful Savior. He's never turned anyone away that came to him. Even the thief on the cross was delivered, blessed, and comforted in his dying moments. And he is able to save all that come unto him. And I pray that you'll humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ today. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.